If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by Giggle. I'm Byron Reese, and today my guest is Kirk Bourne. He is Principal Data Scientist and Executive Advisor at Booz Allen Hamilton. He holds a BS in Physics from Louisiana State and a PhD in Astronomy from Caltech. His background covers all kinds of things relating to data and data science and artificial intelligence, so it should be a great conversation. Welcome to the show, Kirk. Thank you, Byron. It's great to be here. So for the folks who aren't familiar with you and your work, can you give us a little bit of a history about how did you get here? What was the path you took? Well, as you mentioned, uh, my background is astrophysics and astronomy. So starting in grad school about 40 years ago, I was always working with data for scientific discovery, either through modeling and simulation or data analysis. So that's uh, sort of what I was doing, sort of as my uh, avocation, which is uh, research and astronomy, but my vocation became supporting NASA research scientists, data systems. So this, the data systems from various satellites uh, that NASA had for studying the space uh, astronomy domain, I, I worked on those systems and provided access to those data for scientists worldwide. So I did that for about 20 years, and so I was always working with data. I would say data is my day job and data is my night job as an astronomer. And so it was about 20 years ago that uh, we were starting to notice the, the data volumes of the experiments we were working with were just becoming more off-scale than ever imagined. I mean, just one single data set. I still remember 1997, we were, we were trying to work with this data set, but just by itself was more than double the size of the other 15,000 experiments we were working with combined. So that was like unheard of. And so at that point, I started looking around, what can one do with data of this volume? And I discovered machine learning and data mining. So I never actually looked at data that way before. I just thought about analysis, not so much discovery from data from a uh, machine learning perspective. And so that was 20 years ago and uh, sort of fell in love with that whole mathematical process and the applications that come from that, which include AI. That's what I've been doing for the last two decades. And so as a practitioner, what's the sort of uh, work you're doing now? Well, for me personally, it's uh, really about... uh, as my company likes to say, thought leadership. Uh, I get kind of nervous when I say that about myself, but I do a lot of uh, public speaking. A lot of, I write a lot of blogs. I, uh, my title includes executive advisor, so I'm advising uh, both internally our you know, business managers around AI and machine learning and data science, but also our clients. But at the same time, I'm also doing uh, sort of tutoring and mentoring of some of our younger data scientists because after my 20 years at NASA, I spent 12 years at George Mason University as a professor. I was professor of astrophysics, but I really was teaching data science. And so it's sort of in my blood, I guess, to be an educator, to teach, to train. And so uh, that's pretty much what I'm doing. I'm just promoting the field, uh, having conversations with people, uh, sort of developing sort of new ideas and concepts, uh, and not so much coding anymore like I used to do back when I was younger at NASA. Uh, I let the, the smart, the young coders today do all that work, but uh, we have lots of interesting conversations about which algorithms to use or developing. So it's, it's, it's really exploratory innovation, 
at the frontier of all this stuff. So before we launch into AI questions, and I have a pile of them for you, I, I can't imagine there's a astronomy PhD on the planet that doesn't have their own opinion about the Fermi paradox. What is yours? Oh, well, <laughs> I think uh, that's a good question. But I think that my sort of response to that is the, the, the distance between stars is so enormous that it's really hard to imagine uh, that if there was every star had planets that were teeming with life, even nearby stars, it would, it would probably be still next to impossible to imagine any kind of encounter. Because literally, why would they go travel to some speck of dust <laughs> you know, that would take them literally hundreds of years? And you might say the lifespans would be different on different planets. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, all these things are sort of tapered by you know, the, the conditions of, of star evolution and all kinds of things. So I, I can't imagine sort of chemical and biological processes being all that different. In fact, they should not be different on other planets. And so uh, I, I, just, I just think the, the, the time travel and space travel challenges are so enormous that uh, I, just, I just can't see it really happening. So, so I, I, I'm not sure if I can believe whether there's life teeming on every other planet in the, in the, in the, or at least on a planet around each star in the universe, but though that is completely possible. So I'll only ask one follow-up, and then we can launch into AI. But, you know, we would be eager to go visit other stars. I mean, you know, in the 70s, we sent out the Voyager probes, and those were like, hey, everybody, we're here. You would hope maybe somebody. But, of course, that, too, is, you know, a bottle in an intergalactically large ocean. And so maybe uh, maybe there are alien Voyager probes floating around all over the place, but but they're too sparsely separated to ever come our way. Well, uh, it's also considering the size of the thing. I mean, we're detecting better and better than ever before asteroids uh, in our solar system that are you know a few hundred meters in size. Right. But our probes are not much bigger than a suitcase. So we're, we're not paying any attention to those. And in fact, they really are just specks of dust, specks of noise in our yeah. data. And, and, and there's literally hundreds of billions or trillions of such uh, specks of dust in our own solar system. And we're, we're more concerned at, with the big ones that might do damage to us. And so we're just ignoring all of those things, even if some of them, who knows, they, they, for all we know, they could be alien probes you know, with right, we had that we had that cigar shaped. Uh, yeah, well, that extra, was a one. Yeah. So, okay, the the show is voices in AI. So, let's voice a little bit about AI. So, let's start with uh, the basics. How do you, in your mind, define intelligence? And in what sense is artificial intelligence? Is it artificial because we made it, or it's artificial because it's like faux? It's not really intelligent. It's just faking it. Uh, probably all of those. <laughs> So for me, AI is really just the uh, the actionable output of what we learn from incoming sensor data. Okay, so sensors measure things about the world, algorithms find patterns and trends in those uh, readings, and then there's a response and action and a decision that comes from that. That's what humans do. That's what all animals do, right? We have sensors, our eyes, our ears, our mouths, our fingers, our hands, whatever. We have, we're sensing our universe and from what we sense, that is patterns, we recognize, detect patterns and anomalies, that's what we're really good at. Uh, then we uh, we infer what that 
what would happen if I ignore this or not ignore this or take or do something with this thing that I'm seeing, detecting. And uh, then based upon that sort of inference, we, we make a decision to do something or not do something. So our algorithms in the human or any animal is, is a biological neural network. And so we're emulating that with an artificial neural network. So yes, it is artificial intelligence, but I like to say the things we're building are really the purpose of them is not for the purpose of just building an artificial intelligence, but it's to augment our intelligence. So I say the seven A's of AI are augment, augmented intelligence, assisted, amplified, accelerated, adaptable, actionable intelligence. Uh, that's, a, that's six probably. But anyway, so there's uh, I have seven A's of AI that basically say what we really try to do is augment and amplify and accelerate the human intelligence uh, by automating uh, parts of this process, especially the process of, of dealing with all the information flood that's coming into our, our sensors these days. But, you know, you, in a couple of touch points there, you likened machine intelligence to human intelligence in terms of, you you know, you mentioned neural nets that are trying to do something vaguely analogous to what the brain does and all of that. But isn't machine intelligence something radically different, not just in form, but like, like if you gave an AI all the data of planetary motion of the last 500 years, uh, all the planets in our, all the bodies in our solar system, uh, it could figure out what, when the next eclipse was going to be because it would just study it and it would, it would, it would make this assumption the future is like the past and it would, it would do it. But if you then said, what would happen if the moon vanished? How would it change everything? It would be like, I, it wouldn't. I mean, like, it, so it doesn't really understand anything. Like you said, it just finds patterns and makes predictions based on them, but it doesn't understand why anything happens the way it does. It, so it wouldn't, it could be a perfect planetary model, but it wouldn't ever even intuit that something called a gravity exists, right? Well, that's true. But if you think about ancient civilizations, they had no deeper intuition than that machine you just described, right? So if the moon vanished, it would invoke all kinds of bizarre interpretations for that and, and, and even bizarre sort of outcomes like, you know, it's literally, you know, in, in the ancient times when there was an eclipse, you know, they, they, people panicked. And if there was like a royal astronomer, like in some of the ancient uh, court, uh, courts, kingdoms, uh, they, if the astro at ancient astronomer had not predicted that eclipse, they usually lost their head because it was a... You know, maybe we should bring that back, quite frankly. Anyway, um, so, the, <laughs> so I think the, the intuition that we have as humans today, we've gained over millennia of human existence and so so we so what we learn in schools and, and, and i like to tell people you know we, we spend minimum hopefully a successful person spends a minimum of 12 years in school that doesn't drop out and then hopefully beyond that there's either college or continuing education or certainly lifelong learning so so we get to the point where we're actually employable and useful as an intelligent person in the workplace after literally decades of consuming information and knowledge so our algorithms were feeding, yeah, 10,000 or 10 million pictures of cats to it or dogs to it. it, it you haven't even gotten to scratch the surface of all the, the, the thousands and millions of different kinds of knowledge that humans just gather through second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour interaction with their world over decades. 
Right, but I guess I'm I'm trying to poorly articulate something a little different. So you talked about AI being the system that um, it makes uh, it, it, it turns it has sensors that give it information. And it turns that information into action. And so we could imagine a, a cat food thing that you know whenever it's empty, whenever the weight of the bowl falls, it opens a chute and refills itself. Um, which would be that there's a sensor, there's some logic, and then there's some action that comes out of it. So you would call that a rudimentary AI? I, I would call that a robotic process. Uh-huh. I think, I think the, I would. Well, that's interesting, but aren't like all computers by definition, robotic processes? Well, I think, uh, you could imagine something a little bit more intelligent, put that in quotes. Uh, for example, say the cat food bowl wasn't emptying at the same rate. So that would be a pattern that would be noticed. And maybe the reason is because the, the cat food is spoiled. And so doing some kind of like a sniff test or color test. So right now we have computer vision. I'm sure it's not too far in the future. We're going to have sensors that can sense smell in the same way. Computer vision algorithms can look at patterns and images. We can sense because all what what is a smell, but nothing but just sort of molecular content of the air. So, so, so you, you could actually apply a sensor and say to sort of infer why do you think this bowl is not emptying at the same rate as it used to? It, it color looks different, its smell is different, maybe it's spoiled, and so, so you're starting to incorporate what a human would do, which is a lot of contextual information. So, so I would say an AI, first and foremost shouldn't even get that label until it starts including the, these sort of cognitive functions where you're collecting collect, connect, contextual data where you're seeing other things about the thing you're looking at. And, and that's sort of like a, an autonomous car. You can imagine an autonomous car would be just a robotic process where it, it, it has a map of the road and it knows where the stop signs are and the speed limits. And, and then you just it doesn't even have cameras on it. It just sets off and drives. Well, obviously that's pretty dangerous because someone might walk in front of the car or if there's a, some children playing on the side of the street, we know to slow down as a human. So, so the cameras, if you will, give us that contextual, at least give the car that contextual information, more cognitive function, if you want to call it that. And, and at that point, it's not just an autonomous about a process, it becomes in some sense cognitive. Now, I'm not, I don't want to say cognitive like a human being, like robots in the movies. I'm not going that far with it, but I'm just saying it, it, it knows how to take context into decision-making. Right. And I guess what, I guess what I'm trying to, to get around is the, the, the way that machine intelligence is different than human intelligence. Because when you were just describing all of that, you used a lot of, of, of words like, uh, it knows something, it can smell something, it can see something, and a computer doesn't know or smell or see anything, right? It can sense, it can measure, it can do these other things. And and it's perfectly all right, I think, to use these words because we don't have, uh, up until, you know, a few years ago, the idea of anything other than an animal seeing was didn't make any sense. So we've got these, like, words we're trying to r- retrofit into our, our modern technological world. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is all of that, all of what a machine does is, to my mind, so very different than what humans do. And yet, 
it seems like you're, you, you, you don't think maybe it is quite so much because you're drawing these analogs between people and machines. So how would you describe, like, how alien is machine intelligence to you? I think uh, we're not so far apart from what we're saying here. I think the, uh, the comment I made earlier about, I like, to, I like to think of AI as nothing artificial about it. It's really augmented, it's accelerated, amplified intelligence. So, so really what's important there is it's augmenting and accelerating the human process. And sometimes it might take it over and become a robotic process. But for the most part, it's accelerating the intelligence or amplifying the intelligence and, and outputs of a human. So it's it's really sort of an assistant or assisted intelligence. I guess one of my other A's of AI. So it's assisting us. It's not necessarily taking on uh, sentience. Even so, some people like to think of it that way. So I'm not so, but but I'm, I, I stick with the analogs to human intelligence because that's exactly how these algorithms are developed. They're bio-inspired algorithms. I mean, there's entire books written on bio-inspired algorithms, like neural networks and genetic algorithms and other things where we understand sort of the way a biological organism collects information about its world, again, through our eyes, ears, nose, and other sensors. And it goes through a neural network, which we call the brain, uh, which uh, with synapses firing and all this good stuff, which is nothing more uh, than an algorithm that says, when I see this pattern, I need to do this. So I see like the first caveman who came out of the cave sees an animal and uh, so they do, they're doing pattern detection that now they have to do pattern recognition that will this animal eat me for lunch or will I eat that? Can I eat that animal for lunch? And if you make that decision incorrectly, uh, you may not survive another day. Uh, same. So anyway, so the so what humans do, what what animals do, uh, we, we're understanding through neuroscience and uh, we're trying to implement algorithms that that imitate those types of behaviors because they are the in a sense the analog what we call intelligence. Right. I mean, I hear you. I've often cynically thought most of the biological analogs are just marketing. I mean, if you look at it through a different lens, uh, we don't know how brains work. We don't know how thoughts are encoded. We don't know how we do transfer learning, how we learn something and apply it to other areas. We don't know how the mind emerges, which gives us things like creativity and emotions. We don't even have a good theory on how matter can uh, experience the world. And, and, and so I've often thought that all of these attempts to draw those kinds of parallels are, are stretches that you take something we really don't understand the human intelligence. And, and then we take something that's, in a sense, crazy simple. I mean, all AI is, is you take data about the past, you study it, you make projections about the future. And you're right, people do that, but that isn't, I don't know, the essence of intelligence in the sense that that only works when the future is very much like the past, like what a cat looks like, or is that animal going to eat me? But the question of like, what am I going to say next may not be pattern matching in, in the same way. And so I've often found those analogies to be strained, but that, that could just be me. Do you want to say anything else to that before I, I move on to my next question for you? Well, again, I think uh, we're, we're in strong agreement here. I, I, I wouldn't go so far to say those things uh, 
know, or what our machines are trying to do either, you know, feelings, uh, emotion, you know, sort of creativity, even though some people claim there's some kind of creativity in an algorithm, but, but I, those things, I guess what I would say is, you know, that's more about being the, uh, you know, those are symptoms of, of, a, of a living organism as opposed to an intelligent function of an organism. So the intelligence function, again, is that pattern detection, recognition, and decision-making. That's a function, feeling and emotion. It comes from the, the mind and, and the brain. I understand that, but but the it's a different function, if you will, in, in, in sort of my analogy here. So so I'm not... I, I'm with you. I'm not, I'm, I don't think we gotcha. we should be saying AI is going to do all of those things. And, and when you see movies with you know robots that are actually you know maybe developing feelings or something, it's like okay, that's that makes for nice entertainment on the big screen. But you know we're we're not. You know, there's nothing in any of the work that I'm doing with anybody that has anything close to resembling that kind of uh, goal or objective in, in the research. So let me throw a different one at you. Um, I'm an optimist about the future. I mean, anybody who listens to this show or reads my books knows I play my cards face up. I'm optimistic about the future. And yet, I can think of applications of this technology that are troublesome. And one of them in particular is uh, in the notion of privacy, because in the past, we all had privacy because there's so many of us. You can't listen to every phone conversation. You can't follow every person. And I guess with AI, you can, right? can listen to every phone conversation and uh and model it uh, you know turn it to text and then build sophisticated models that look for patterns you know all the same techniques we use in other stuff and with cameras everywhere and facial recognition you can follow everybody and and you can read every email that's written and you can make sense of it all and the temptation for a state to use that or any other aggregator of significant size to use that, um, I suspect is overwhelmingly tempting. Do you share that concern? And if so, do you, do you have any suggestions for solutions to it? Well, I'm, I'm uh, very similar to you again. <laughs> it seems like we have a lot of agreement here. I, I call myself oftentimes a, a skeptical optimist or an op optimistic skeptic. I'm maybe not sure which, which way to say that. Uh, but I'm primarily an optimist myself, uh, so I don't necessarily ascribe to you know to the apocalyptic visions of AI and all these things. But I am I do keep a good skeptical attitude toward the fact that you know I know that people are trying to develop things that might uh, either go out of control or violate our privacy or violate some ethical principles. I mean that that those things have already happened, and so so I realize that there are these danger zones, and we and people have. Some groups have you know, already stepped into those danger zones. Uh, certainly, we see things like fake news and other things. And the thing that sort of worries me, uh, certainly in uh, the United States, is that some of our strongest adversaries across the world may not have the same ethical principles we have. And so they have no problem doing things that we would have a problem doing. And so there are technologies being developed that, you know, we ourselves wouldn't develop and deploy, but, you know, someone else might be developing and deploying against us. And so, they, so, so we have to be eyes open with this. And part of eyes open means we need to understand those technologies. And part of the way you understand it is by building them, I guess, and, and seeing their failure points and where they can go wrong. So you can't really defend against something if you don't know how it works. So 
So I, I do think we need to do some of these things, uh, but we always we always need to have the uh, the principles guiding it, and the principles are not strong enough unless there's some kind of what I would say an external review board. So, for example, uh, one of the sort of points of view I like to take on AI is that I, I, I use the expression that it's a grand experiment on humanity. <laughs> and so, like all human subjects research, when I was at universities, any kind of human subjects re research had to go through an internal review board to to validate that you know that there was no uh, harm or potential to you know, to the participants, uh, that there were benefits uh, would outweigh the, the, the dangers, even though, yes, you, research sometimes contains risk, but the benefits have to outweigh the risks, that uh, there's equitable distribution uh, of both benefits and risks, that is, you can't do, like, experimental drug trials on one population to benefit another, <laughs> that kind of thing, which has happened in the distant past, not, too, not so distant even. So, so think about AI. There needs to be something equivalent to an independent review board that's going to look at this and and say, you know, based upon some principles, this or that can't be done or should not be done. So I think uh, we we can't put our head in the sand and, and say, well, the, all these things will go away if we don't uh, pay attention to them. But we, but at the same time, we need to like evaluate them as we go. Well, let me throw another another kind of challenge with the technology to you, which there's a lot of people who have a knee-jerk reaction to the use of artificial intelligence in war, in warfare, and specifically the use of AI to make independent kill decisions. And then other people come forth and they say, look, right now we drop bombs that just blow everything up, or we have drones where they just blow everything up. Uh, good people, bad people, all of the rest, because they're, and yet now we have a technology you could add to that that said, okay, the drone's only going to fly down and blow up if it does facial recognition and finds that this is this person, this single person it's looking for. Isn't that, quote, better kind of by any view? And or how do you kind of sort through all that? Yeah, I think that, uh, sort of more precision in, in all of that is critical. I think, uh, you know, sort of ancient warfare, which was just basically just blow everything up and, you know, count the pieces later or something like that. I think we, we're, we're better than that. Uh, and we're not talking about the ethics of war here, which is a different conversation about whether you should or should not go after someone. But if, but if, if that someone is like the person who uh, masterminded the 9-11 the attacks in the United States, I think people were not too disturbed that I was thinking that there was an outcome there that, that but it was a very targeted specific outcome we didn't just blow up the compound and kill everybody there it was just one specific person we were after so I think the precision in warfare is is a parallel to like precision medicine where you target a particular gene or, or sequence in the gene uh, for treating a particular patient with a particular disease. So it's very targeted, very specific, and very precise. And, and same thing with precision agriculture, where you, one of the things I heard recently is a tractor company has a smart sensors on their tractors. So when they're distributing fertilizer and weed killer, they, they literally in real time with their camera detect uh, the, the- What leaf. kind of plant it is, yeah. What kind, of, what kind of leaf it is, yeah, what plant it is, what is the leaf? Is, is it a weed, it sprays the weed killer. If it's, a, if it's something, you, that you want to grow, it spreads the fertilizer. So 
So it's great cost savings, uh, not only in terms of the distribution itself, but also in terms of the, the productivity of the field, but also at the same time, a good for the environment not to be spreading stuff around you don't need to. So anyway, so th this kind of thing has amazing uh, potential to, you know, to, to make our decision making better. And, and I, I still think I don't, I don't have any inside knowledge, but I'm pretty sure that even when there, there are, uh, for example, drones that are targeting a specific person, there, there, there is a, a commander, a human being who makes the final go decision. I mean, the AI, the computer vision algorithm is, is doing the face recognition to identify the person, but someone else is giving the command. Okay, but once the command is given, yeah, then the thing goes in, tracks down that person and takes the action. But, it, but it's, again, a, a human commander that makes the decision. Um, let me throw another one at you, which is explainability. So the, some people believe that if an AI makes a decision about you that affects your life, like... Um, whether you get a car loan or not, you have the right to know why that decision was made. And then other people say, well, that sounds good, but with AI, there often is no why. It's, it's a model that just fits data to outcomes, and there's no, there's no why. It just, this person looks more like people that didn't pay their loan than people who did pay their loan, and it's no, no more complicated than that. And so in some areas, uh, like in Europe, you have explainability in Sconston law. And in other places, like this country right now, you don't. Do you think that having a burden of explainability will impede development of the technology in those places? Well, I think uh, it could. I'm a big proponent of explainability. I think uh, as a person myself who's worked on algorithms, even developed some, maybe not as as powerful as the ones that exist in the world today, but I've developed algorithms. And, and if you, if you can't explain sort of why it's doing what it's doing, you know what? But hold on a second. I mean, if you, if you're Google and you've spent the last 20 years and there are thousands of factors that go into something and there's 50 billion pages you've ranked. And then somebody calls you and says, look, I'm in Akron and I have a pool pool supply company. And when you type pool supply Akron, I'm number four and my competitor is number one. And that really affects my life. Why are they one and I'm four? And I think Google, as honestly as they could say, would say, we have no idea. Like, that is an unknowable question, why they're one and you're four out of 50 billion pages across a thousand different variables. So how can you have explainability? Well, I think in that case, you can't explain a specific outcome, but you can explain what Google's doing through a page rank you know, uh, matrix inversion of a linear programming equation. And so the, it, it, a person may not understand those words, but it's mathematically understood. I, I think the thing that's worrisome is more of these deep neural networks, these deep learning algorithms where they have, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, hundreds of layers. And those layers are doing all these convolutions and combinations of the inputs. And it's some extraordinarily peculiar combination that leads to a decision. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, for example, let's just make up something here. Let's say your facial expression determines whether you should get a loan. I'm just making this up. <laughs> and you're, let's say you're, somebody has figured out what someone's facial expression is when they're telling a lie. Well, that's probably not too far-fetched to imagine. 
And so you go in to apply for a loan, and it's and, and as you're answering the questions on the forum or in person or orally, they see that the machine detects that you're lying. Well, how does it know that? Well, it was the fact that you had your left eye up and your lip was curled and you had a warm brow and there was sweat on your palms. It's like, no, some other thing that we can't explain. Well, that, yeah, that gets a little worrisome now because it's so, it's something deeper in that algorithm. That is, but hold on just a second. Not, I, I want you to keep going, but a person, a loan officer, might say, I think he's lying. And like, how do you know? It's like, I don't know. I just feel like he's lying. I'm not going to get him alone. And we accept that, don't we, or not? Because we can't, I wouldn't think we would hold computers to higher standards than we hold people to. Yeah, but I think, I think we've reached, the, at least, you know, in, in this current society, we've reached the point that I don't think I would trust someone who would say that, because how do you know that loan officer isn't carrying some cultural baggage? You don't know. But if the, if the algorithm is looking at facial features and uh, sweaty palms and, and biometrics like that, uh, objectively, you know, with, you know, without any kind of cultural bias, hopefully, of course, it depends how it's trained. I understand that the, the training set can affect that outcome. But if, if, but if, it, if, if, it, if you run the same algorithm on a different person who's lying it should come up with the same answer and if you run it against the person who's not lying it should come up with the answer that they're not lying so uh, whereas the, the human is, is probably more fallible it, not necessarily intentionally but unintentionally i just think this person is lying because they're nervous well maybe they're nervous because they just got a phone call from a family member who's got a you know, very serious illness and has nothing to do with the loan so so, uh, yeah, so, so things that we pick up on as humans may not even be real relevant to the decision. But, I mean, that cuts both ways. The computer would see that their hands are sweating because... That's true. I, I agree. It's, it's, so it's, it's complicated. But so explainability, I think, is, is you know, just from a scientific perspective, I think is essential. In terms of application, it doesn't always have to be essential. For example, well, if I... Take if that I if I get a recommended, if I get, if I go to an e-commerce store and it's recommending a product to me, yeah, I can just ignore it if I don't like what I'm being recommended. So it's not such a big deal that there's some kind of complicated algorithm that's figured out that I live in a certain zip code and I like to go to sporting games and I'm a scientist and I'm from Louisiana and I have a brother in Delaware. So all this information somehow made it decide that to offer me this product for whatever reason I can't figure out, but I decide I don't, I'm not interested. So I'm not too worried about how that algorithm figured out to offer me this thing. I choose to buy or not to buy. But you just said from a scientific standpoint, explainability is essential. Yeah. Explain that, that sentence. Well, I think that, again, if, if the algorithm itself has to be, In a sense, you have to be able to trace input to output. Let's just put it that way. So if I put something in and something comes out the back and you know, I have a function y equals f of x where this function is some complicated thing, if I can't explain what that is, then that's not really science. It's sort of like uh, some people call that black magic. I would just call it a fishing expedition. That is, I keep fishing for a, an algorithm, a function that produces an output that I like. That is, it's, it's classifying the cats and dogs correctly, so I'm fine with it without even knowing that maybe it's going to do something else awkward. 
That seems, though, to be capping machine intelligence at human intelligence. Well, in some sense, it is in the sense that most of what we call machine learning nowadays, at least in the supervised learning, and, and AI is, is an example of this, where we train data on instance, you know, training instances. Those labeled data are only as accurate as humans have labeled them. So we ran a competition in my company, an open competition called Data Science Bowl, which tens of thousands of people worldwide participated in. And the, uh, we're detecting uh, heart disease from uh, scans of uh, people's hearts. And it was able to detect, uh, it basically had an error rate of like 1% in terms of detection of actual heart disease versus not heart disease. And it could not possibly do better than that because that was the <coughs> error rate of expert cardiologists which provided the data set. Now we know that that was an error because once people actually went back to those patients and did further lab work, they discovered that some of those that were labeled or diagnosed one way actually had the opposite diagnosis. But, but the expert cardiologists who just looked at the scans in the same way that the algorithms looked at the scans had a 1% error rate, and we got algorithms that, got, that matched that, and it made no sense to get an algorithm better than that because the training set had built-in variants. If you start fitting the variants, overfitting, that's you know, one of the crimes of data science, is if you start fitting the variants, the natural variants in the data. So, so in some sense, yeah, our algorithms shouldn't exceed humans yet, but once it starts doing more things like reinforcement learning, so if you think about the alpha go that beat the human world best go player, it taught itself how to play the best possible go game by playing itself millions and millions of times and reinforcement learning therefore can exceed human intelligence in the context of, of reinforcement learning, which is here's the, here's the rules to play by and here's the, the goal or the outcome. But the thing is, is, that goes back to explainability because if, if you when when AlphaGo beat Lee Sedol and it made I'm going to get the number wrong move whatever 36 or whatever that just blew everybody away and uh, even by their own models AlphaGo people said that that was a you know a move no human would have made if if you said why did you make that move AlphaGo there isn't really a why I mean it, there is but it isn't necessarily explainable to a human so. Your, your best performing AIs aren't right. explainable. And so, I, I, yeah, I'm not disagreeing with that. I, I, I think I'm, it's a lot of, but you said that they, that they're voodoo or magic or something and they're not science. If you can't explain why it happened that way. Let me rephrase, let me rephrase what I, what I probably said, but what I intended to say is that scientifically we need to do that uh, exploration that is, we need to try to find the explanation for our model. I'm not saying that if it's if it really is a complicated model, it can't be explained. That you know, for example, uh, financial markets. I mean, I always like to use this example with my students. I, I teach them, uh, you know, some forecasting techniques, and they say, "Hey, can I use this to forecast the stock market?" And I said, "Literally, you can't, because there are millions and millions of factors worldwide: economic, political, social." financial, you name it, that lead to the outcome, which is the current price of a stock. And it's, it's just not humanly possible to know what combinations of all those millions of worldwide events and factors and statements that people make in the news, et cetera, led to that outcome. But that's equivalent to the Akron, why am I number one and he's number four? Yeah. So, you, so at some point you say, well, I understand it's a complex system of complex uh -huh. interactions. 
And, and that's okay scientifically because there's an entire science of, of, of complexity and chaos theory, and that's understood as a scientific process. It doesn't mean I can say that what the outcome will be is, under, is explainable in that sense, but I can explain that this is a complex process with millions of interactions that lead to these outcomes. And, and it's, it's almost like there's in, in astronomy, there's really there's chaotic orbits and planets, which never could be understood until someone actually applied chaos theory to solar system dynamics. And now we realize that we cannot predict the actual positions of the planets in the solar system out beyond maybe a, a, a billion years or so, because it's, it's just it's just not possible. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, we can't explain why that planet, Jupiter, Mars, Earth, whatever, is in a particular place. If we come back four billion years from now and look at where the planets are, all right, we can't explain that because, but we can, we can, but we can, lowercase explain it, not uppercase explain it, in the sense right. that it's, it's a chaotic, complex system where these outcomes happen, though they are not predictable and explainable in the uppercase explainable sense. So. Again, that's, it's, that's a scientific process of trying to understand why it did this. And if, if the why is because it's a complex chaotic system, then that's still a scientific explanation. Mm-hmm. So by that, somebody can say, well, explain why the AI made that choice. And you say, well, there are these machines that have ones and zeros. <laughs> well, I, um, well, if you go back to the Akron case, I still think it's the, it's, you know, the, the matrix inversion of the linear programming uh-huh. equation. Called PageRank, and Google keeps you know the, the right. full details of PageRank proprietary secret. Right. right, but I mean by their admission, you know it's words on page and who's linking to you and what terms were in the store yeah. and what's your social r- ranking and how long have you had your domain registered and a thousand other variables. Exactly. So going um, back to the financial forecasting, right. there's all these variables that go into it. But I think it's even. Theirs is actually really mathematically explainable, I believe. (laughs) Well, Kirk, uh, I've taken more of your time than I originally was going to. I thank you for your patience. And we could have gone on for longer, but uh, I'll uh, wrap up here and just ask you a final question, which is how can people keep up with you and what you're doing and whether you write or anything like that? Well, I'm very active on uh, social media, primarily Twitter, but also on LinkedIn. I write a lot of blogs, uh, and I always uh, post links to them on my Twitter page and try to do that frequently on my LinkedIn page. So you can see where I'm going, what I'm talking about, what I'm learning uh, there. That's that's sort of what uh, I, I live my sort of data science uh, life out in the open because uh, I feel myself sort of educating the world on this topic, which I, which I love doing. I love finding new and interesting things and sharing it with others. Well, thank you for sharing with us, and uh, you have a good day. Thank you so much, Byron. It was fun. If you enjoy this Voices in AI podcast, consider subscribing to the new Deep Dive into AI monthly report authored by Byron Reese. Each report offers exhaustive analysis of a key issue in AI. This is designed to guide and inform enterprise decision makers interested in, planning for, or already investing in AI. Visit gigaohm.com slash deep dive to try it for free.